Welcome to America the Bazaar. I'm your host, Jordan Rausch. And I'm Jeremy. This is a weekly American history podcast that deep dives into all the stories that made America into the beautiful weirdo she is today. You're getting pretty good at that. I, I'm getting I'm getting it. I have to yeah. remind myself to slow down so I don't just go blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Actually, I mean, I realize that I talk... Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah. I realize that I talk really fast through this whole podcast anyways. So literally in my mind while we're doing this, I'm constantly like, breathe. And so then when I go through <laughs> editing, I'm literally editing out of these breaths. I go... <gasps> <laughs> You're welcome. I'm glad yeah, you edit those out. That I spend so all I'm that sure time. the listeners appreciate that. Yeah, I hope they do. <laughs> so it sounds like I've been running a marathon every time I take a breath. Right. It's awful. <laughs> I'm sure I've let a few slip that people have noticed. Yeah. Yeah. I have a question. Were you ever, I know you probably never admitted this as like when you were younger, but were you ever into boy bands? Like say elementary what, what school? What do you mean I would never admit this? I don't Ooh. know if you know, did I tell you who what my first two CDs were when I got a uh, Discman? I don't think Sony so. Sony Discman? I don't think you've ever told me. NSYNC. Really? And the Titanic soundtrack. Oh my gosh. It was an Easter present, I'm pretty sure, from my mom. You're going to love this. (laughs) My first CDs were Dixie Chicks Uh and Britney Spears. Appropriate. So, you know, in the same, you know. Apparently my mom just thought I was a boy band kind of kid. And the Titanic soundtrack. I don't think I'd ever watched that movie (laughs) until I was like 20. I was going to say, probably at the time that you got your first Discman, you were you probably were too young to watch Titanic. Yeah. Like there there's a little bit of risky. risky she's saying stuff I'm old. That's what she's saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll get to we'll actually get into boy bands in this episode. Nice. But first, presidential trivia. Yes. Which president created his own version of the Bible? Hmm. So, like their own special edition. Yeah. Got any mm, ideas? I've got, <laughs> I've got one right off the top of my okay, head. Shoot, shoot, tell me. <laughs> it's probably an unpopular opinion, but the forty-fifth president. Um, <laughs> you know, he might have his own Bible. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it, but not the one that I have in mind. Yeah, there's another one that I know for sure yeah. did, and that answer will be at the end of this episode. So stay tuned. Okay. Lou Pearlman was born on June 19, 1954, in Flushing, Queens. His father ran a dry-cleaning business and would take Lou with him on delivery rides. Flushing, Queens? Flushing, Queens. Where's that at? So, Flushing is like an area inside of Queens, New York, like a neighborhood. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. It's a neighborhood. Yeah. And this is where Lou developed his own entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. Yep. At nine years old, Lou set up his own lemonade stand by his neighborhood bus stop, because location is everything. Location, location, location. He continued to pick up odd jobs as a kid, including Paperboy, cleaning up Goodyear blimps, and became the manager of a band using his connections as Art Garfunkel's cousin, which he brought up a lot. There was a lot in that sentence. Yes. (laughs) Cleaning up Goodyear blimps. Yes. Apparently- Like picking up, like, the- the tattered bits that remained from them, or I think like, just like, like washing them after they've just, been flying just for a while. Just washing them after they like had been flying for a bit. Okay, cleaning them. Okay, and then yes, Art Garfunkel mm-hmm. 
was his cousin, his first cousin. Wow. And so, and he actually played at Lou's bar mitzvah. Wow. And Lou made sure to bring up his family connection quite a bit. Oh, sure. He actually... I'm just going to throw this out there, but I am related to Neil Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon. Not, so. You're not first cousins. My mom did say that after reviewing the family tree, we are a lot closer than we thought we were. So... But not first cousins. Almost. Almost. Is what I'm <laughs> <laughs> as close to first cousins as 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 you should be. You really want to be, really. Okay. To a man well, like Lou that. Lou actually knew Art. Like <laughs> okay. actually met All him. Right. Yeah. And Lou used this to become the manager of a band called Flyer. So he actually managed a band that actually had like a decent following. Mm-hmm. They never made it huge, mm-hmm. but they had a decent following. Lou attended Queens College, where he studied accounting. For a class project, Lou had to come up with a business plan. His plan was to create a helicopter taxi service in New York City. Hmm. Once Lou graduated, he started his helicopter service with one helicopter, and then his uncle helped him buy his second helicopter that shuttled businessmen from their Wall Street offices to local airports. After a couple years, Lou sold the helicopter business to Island Helicopters, which became the largest helicopter service for tourists in New York City. Lou used the money. So, wait, so this guy, so Lou basically created Uber for helicopters. Yeah. Before Uber was even a thing for cars. Right. <laughs> My mind is exploding right now. Yeah, and this was like in the late 70s that he created this business. Yeah. Entrepreneur for sure. Too ahead of his time, really. Yeah. So Lou used the money from selling his helicopter business mm-hmm. to start a charter plane business that he named Transcom Airways in 1976. Yeah. Lou then created Transcontinental Airlines in 1978 with backing from a wealthy passenger of his charter plane. Transcontinental Airlines started out by leasing airplanes from Transcom Airways and made a lot of money from banks using his planes to deliver checks to their clearinghouses across the country. Hmm. Back then, it was actually the banks could make more money the faster that those checks made it to the clearinghouse because they could start, you know, investing it into stocks, which is how banks make money. Right. So I didn't know that, but I'm going to sit here and nod my head like I knew that. Oh, yeah. So this is how, okay, quick, quick lesson for like, you know, your checking accounts or your savings accounts. Mm-hmm. Banks make money off of that by taking the money that you're sticking into the bank and they put it into the stock market mm-hmm. and then that earns money. Mm-hmm. So that's why like during the Great Depression, when there was runs on banks and they mm-hmm. ran out of money. Because they don't have your money actually living, like sitting there. They don't have everybody's money just sitting there in cash. Mm-hmm. The majority of it's actually in the stock market because they're banking on the fact that you're not going to come. So not everybody's going to come grab it all at once. So as a law student, when I have a negative balance on my bank account, how does that work? Is the stock market investing in the bank? <laughs> Okay, oh, we don't have enough time in this <laughs> podcast. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. To go over banking. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It was a joke. It was a joke. I know. It comes out of other customers' bank accounts. And then they charge me a shit ton of overdraft fees. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure you can find a financial podcast <laughs> yeah. to help you out with Any that. Any recommendations, attach it. 
in the comments. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that was the banking side note. With that money that yeah. he was making from the banks and more wealthy investors, because he's still chartering wealthy businessmen, and mm-hmm. then he's convincing them to invest in his airlines. Invest in his airlines. Transcontinental Airlines was able to start buying their own large planes. Because first they were just leasing them, and yeah. now, now they're starting to be able to buy their own planes. By 1980, Lou decided to expand his air travel business again and created Airship Enterprises, which specialized in blimps. Hmm. Using his love for blimps when he used to clean them, he wanted to uh, get into that business. Yeah. His first blimp was a complete failure. Lou could only raise enough money from investors to purchase the outside envelope of the blimp. So basically, like, yeah, just the exterior of it. Like the material. Mm-hmm. He couldn't buy any hot air for it. Oh, God. Lou and his <laughs> Lou and his friends had to build the frame themselves. So yeah. literally, they just bought like yeah the fabric, and so they have to build the large frame for uh, it themselves yeah. and everything yeah, the, else. The ship, yes, air quotes the ship portion of it, the cabin. So Lou had it painted gold, but in the sun, it turned a shade of brown that was described as duty colored. <laughs> During its maiden voyage. <laughs> Are you, are you seeing this? Does that just look like a giant floating turd to you? Yeah, that's like what people said. They're like, that looks like just a huge pile of poop in the sky. So during its maiden voyage, the blimp only got about 30 feet in the air and could only turn right, and it just starts spinning right, until it crashed right into a bunch of pine trees at the same naval base where the Hindenburg had went down in flames in 1937. Oh, no. Lou got $2.5 million out of a settlement with the insurance company he bought a policy on the blimp with. Nice. Many believe this was all an insurance scam from the beginning since the blimp was so poorly made. <laughs> like, I don't he think made so. a ton I think they of... were just, like, trying to grind it out. Like, we can do this. Well, the thing... The but only... he was also like, we're doing it, like... Ooh. Well, the insurance company said that they thought that he had made... That he had bought a blimp from a company in Germany that actually made blimps. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they agreed to ha- have it insured for so much, mm-hmm. when in fact he only bought literally the exterior covering from the company in Germany mm-hmm. and built the rest himself. They would have never insured it if they did if they had known that. Yeah. It was kind of a it it was it was sketchy yeah. for sure. But he got the two. It was probably million. one of those things where they didn't ask the right questions, right? So he or technically they... never lied, right? No, I think that's exactly what it was. <laughs> that's not insurance fraud. That's on them. However, they should have been better. <laughs> so Lou used this insurance money to actually buy a blimp from that German company. A full one this time. A full one. He doesn't. He didn't he... have to build nothing. Right. Exactly. Some assembly required, maybe. Yeah. So it's professionally made. And he was able to convince McDonald's and signing an advertising contract with him. So it was just was a huge. giant red blimp with a golden arch it on it. It sure was. Oh, my gosh. In 1982, at 28 years old, so yeah, he's still in his 20s, by the way. And I'm 30, so thanks <laughs> for that, Lou. appreciate the motivation. Lou claimed that he had already made $400 million from a combination of all his different businesses. Yeah. However, who knows if that was true or how much he actually made in net profit because mm-hmm. he is in like the businesses that he's dabbling in your overhead high overhead it is yeah. very airplanes high. airplane maintenance mm-hmm. staffing yeah, so who's to say how much of yeah. that was actually profit yeah. Yeah. you know liquid 
Yeah. So Lou finally moved out of his parents' apartment in 1982. And to his own... At the ripe old age of 28. Yes. And to his own... Ha, Lou, I beat you. I was 25. (laughs) Got you by three years. Take that, Lou. Yeah. And he moved into his own penthouse in Queens. Lou started a... Well, that's quite the change in scenery. Quite the upgrade. From your parents' apartment to the penthouse suite. When his parents' apartment was a one-bedroom apartment... Where they let him have the one bedroom and they slept in the living room. Jeez. If I was his parents, I would have been like, listen here, a-hole. Well, he, we raised you. you were gonna, you're going to buy us a new house. Well, by this time, his father had died. Uh, and, um, but he did treat his mother very well. Sure. But, I mean, he waited till his father died before he before treated his mother well? Before he moved out? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't... Yeah. Lou started to sell shares of Transcontinental Travel Service and Transcontinental Airlines to his friends and family around $5,000 a share. Mm. Lou claimed that Transcon had around 50 aircraft and annual revenues of around $80 million. He also sold retirement investment accounts through Transcon. See, so you're saying this, and now I'm starting to get a vibe like <laughs> this dude's kind of full of shit. <laughs> I'm glad that you started to pick yeah, up on my little hints that yeah, I like s- sprinkle yeah, throughout the stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My little foreshadowing yeah, hints. Yeah. Claim it was worth five thousand yeah. dollars. So a- he around fifty aircraft. Like, how do you yeah. not know how many airplanes you own? Right. So Lou also claimed that trans. Oh, how many? Know. How many cars do you own, Jordan? Around one. <laughs> 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 Lou also sold retirement... Like, you're unsure of that number? Uh, I don't really know. It's, <laughs> it could be anywhere around there. Might be possible I own some cars in a foreign country. Right? I mean, maybe. <laughs> Who's to say? Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah. Who's to say we own anything? Who's, yeah. Uh, what is own? <laughs> God. Anyways, sorry. So... <laughs> Lou also sold retirement investment accounts through Transcon that he swore was backed by the FDIC and Lloyds of London. Hmm. Then Airship International became a public. What did the FDIC say about that? Well, he had a <laughs> when people actually asked about it, he would bring them to his office and he'd show them a certificate from the FDIC. Okay. And that's all I'm going to say about that right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then Airship International became a publicly traded company. Lou used a Colorado brokerage house to sell airship stocks to investors and raised about $17 million by overstating the worth of airship stocks and even taking investors' orders for one stock and buying airship shares instead. Mm. Which is fraud. You're not supposed to do that. (laughs) If anybody was still looking for financial (laughs) tips... Not from the, this guy. Not from, not the finance, from us th- via Lou. Yeah, how the finance world works. Lou also began to seek outside investors for Transcon using shares and the retirement investment accounts to draw them in. Investors ranged from middle-aged couples hoping to have a comfortable retirement in a few years to very wealthy people across the country. The Transcon stock paid annual dividends of about 10%, and the investment account paid annual returns of around 8%, which made both very appealing. Mm. Lou bought a 6,000-square-foot vacation home in Orlando, Florida, and moved Airship International's office to Orlando in 1991. 
Lou brought some of his longtime friends, like Francisco Vasquez, with him to continue working in the company. That name sounds familiar. I don't think you know him. He was kind of a behind-the-scenes guy, but he was a Hmm. childhood friend of Lou's that, you know, when Lou started running his businesses, Mm -hmm. Francisco was like, Always working for him. Okay. Always, you know, basically yeah. doing whatever Lou wanted. Yeah, yeah. Him his go-to guy. Yeah, and he so was he part mo- of his entourage. Yes, and so he moved to Orlando with Lou. Nice. Now, Orlando is filled with theme parks, much like Los Angeles, but it is much more affordable to live in Orlando rather than Los Angeles, hmm. which means that young performers flock to Orlando to sing, dance, and dress up as characters at the parks, hoping to make it big someday. This was also around the time that Lou became amazed at the success of New Kids on the Block when they leased one of his planes and the $100 million a year that they made from <laughs> album sales, concert tickets, and merchandise. Uh, Lou decided that... <laughs> right? That's her song? <laughs> yeah. Lou decided that boy bands were going to be his next big moneymaker. Oh, gosh. You're going to be so excited. Lou put out advertisements for young men that could sing and dance to audition. Lou selected five boys in 1993 and named the band the Backstreet Boys. What? (laughs) He bought the boys a house and told them to quit their jobs and school. He hired tutors for those that were still under 18 and vocal coaches for all the boys. He sent the boys to what he called boot camp, where they would sing and learn choreography in his blimp hanger for six to eight hours a day. <laughs> Figured if he could, they could stand the heat and sing and dance in the hangar for six to eight hours, they'd have no problems at concerts. Yeah. Backstreet Boys started touring and then released their first album in the summer of 1996. Backstreet Boys were a hit and became instant teen heartthrobs. Lou said where there was Coca-Cola, there was Pepsi. And if anyone was going to try to replicate the success of Backstreet Boys, it was going to be him. Oh, my god! So after getting Justin Timberlake to sign on, Lou recruited four other boys and formed the group NSYNC. My gosh. Lou offered NSYNC. He wanted to own Pepsi and Coke. Exactly. Why not own both of them? Yeah. Lou offered NSYNC all the same perks as Backstreet Boys, a house, tutors, vocal coaches, etc., Everything was paid for by Lou, and the boys also got a $35 per diem with the promise of getting real paychecks once they made it big. NSYNC started off by touring in Europe, and after making it big there, came to America. After having one of their concerts televised by the Disney Channel, they instantly became just as popular as the Backstreet Boys. The two boy bands began to compete for the very same market. Mm-hmm. You were either, back then, as a young teen or tween girl or tween boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you were either a Backstreet fan or an NSYNC fan, and mm-hmm. there was literally feuds. Yeah. I was clearly an NSYNC fan. Oh, for sure. Justin, I mean, they had Justin Timberlake. Yeah. That's it. That's just, that's the argument. <laughs> well, also, that was the CD my mom bought me. Well, yes. For, uh, to go along with my disc bin. <laughs> I was an NSYNC fan, but I never was, like, one of those girls that got so hard into it that they would literally, like, get into an argument uh, well, about it. So that's the crazy thing. Is like, honestly, I, I grew up listening to Golden Oldies. Like, I grew up listening to 50s, 60s, and 70s music because yeah. that's what my dad and my mom listened to. And so, like, I think they were worried that I was, like, just going to, like, know all this old music and not 
because we lived out in the middle of nowhere for living in Boise, like we lived out in the middle of nowhere. So they were like, maybe that was their way of like trying to integrate me with pop culture was like getting <laughs> me this discman, buying me an NSYNC CD. I actually think <laughs> that I got a Backstreet Boy CD before I got an NSYNC CD. I think that's because I got a one of those like like two or three song Backstreet Boy CDs in a Happy Meal. Mm. Nice. Yeah. Nice. That's how I ended up yeah. getting that CD. Both, um, so both bands were constantly touring, performing in concerts, appearing for radio interviews, and showing up on okay, TRL. Wait, time out, time, time, on, out, time okay. out. If you don't know who Backstreet Boys and NSYNC is right now, go to YouTube, Google those. NSYNC is N apostrophe S Y N C. You can also leave out the apostrophe. You'll still find their videos. Oh. And Backstreet Boys. You gonna spell it out? <laughs> no, because that's how you think it'd be spelled. Common, yes. common spelling, I should say. I I would think that most everybody knows, but maybe there's some yeah. listeners that don't. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's we got a wide variety. It's boy band pop music. Yeah, they like Bieber, but '90s, right? And they said basically TRL and like fi- or oh, excuse me, Jonas Brothers, but '90s, yes. not Bieber. Bieber's a one man. Yes. So um, they said that TRL on MTV. Did you ever mm-hmm. watch that show mm-hmm. with Carson oh, yeah. Daly? Oh yeah. That be- did I ever watch that show? Of course I did. I had satellite TV. <laughs> yeah. So that show is basically people would ask to hear songs or watch vi- music videos, and they would play them. What does it stand for? Uh, Total Request Live yeah. and Backstreet Boys and NSYNC were on that show all the time, and yeah, fangirls just fangirls all over, just them. screaming outside the window. <laughs> yeah. So Lou had plans to continue writing out the boy band's phenomenon. He kept holding auditions and putting bands Don't together. Tell though Backstreet, no, that was okay. Usher. Oh, that's right. I knew that. I've seen that. Uh, I, I took never you, say never. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I, I took you to that <laughs> yep. in theaters. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's I'm right. embarrassed. Um, <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> uh, just a little bit. Backstreet Boys and NSYNC were always his largest bands, yeah. but he kept creating boy bands. Lou told the boys in his bands to call him Big Papa. Ooh. Yeah, you can, yeah. People, like, it depends. I watched a lot of documentaries, actually, on this. Mm-hmm. And it depends on who you ask about the nickname. Some people are like, oh, because he was like a father figure because he paid for everything. And some people are like, mm, it was gross. Yeah, it's kind of creepy. Yeah, because these are young boys. Some as young as 13. Yeah. So they're like, eh. Yeah, questionable. So... Yeah, he liked to see himself as both a father figure to the boys and a part of the band. Mm. Wait, how old was he again? So, this is the 90s. So, he's like in his 40s. 40s? Yeah. That's weird. It's weird. And this also, like, when he was just wanting the fandom that he wanted. He was also a a very large man. And Mm. he was also, like, balding by this point. Mm. And he was definitely. He definitely stood out when he was, like, hanging out with these guys. Boy bands. Yeah. So after Steve Mooney, an inspiring singer who auditioned to join Lou's band O-Town, he was hired by Lou to be his personal assistant and told that if he did a good job, he would be put in the band. Mooney ended up moving in with Lou. Mooney recalled being told by Lou to leave the house for hours at a time. When he would return, Mooney would see young singers leaving from Lou's bedroom, buttoning their pants back up and looking very embarrassed. The most denied that anything improper ever occurred. 
Mooney recalled that Lou began to wear less and less clothes around his house, eventually just walking around naked. When Mooney asked Lou when he was finally going to put him in the band, Lou sat down naked, spread his legs, and said, figure it out. Oh. Mooney left, quit, and just left. Oh. When Nick Carter turned 17 in 1997, AJ... Wait, what? Nick Carter? Nick Carter was in Backstreet Boys. Oh, sorry. I'm thinking of Aaron Carter. Yeah. I just want candy. <laughs> so when Nick... <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Sorry. So when Nick Carter turned 17 in 1997, A.J. McLean's mother said that A.J. mentioned that Nick felt uncomfortable staying at Lou's house, and she overheard that some kind of inappropriate behavior had occurred. Nick nor his parents ever said anything, but there were other band members' mothers that called Lou a sexual predator. Nick Carter's mother, Jane Carter, in an interview said, Certain things happened, and it almost destroyed our family. I tried to warn everyone. I tried to warn all the mothers. I tried to expose him for what he was years ago. I can't say anything more. These children are fearful, and they want to go on with their careers. There were also several stories of some of the boys, some as young as 13, having sleepovers at Lou's house, and him appearing at the foot of their beds in nothing but a towel. He would then jump on the bed with the boys in it and try to wrestle with them while the towel fell off. During this time, Lou also purchased the Chip and Dale's Dance franchise and created Transcon Foods, which owns several TCBY yogurt franchises and a chain of pizzerias named NYPD Pizza. When Lou gave the boys an NSYNC their first paycheck, the boys were very disappointed when they each only received $10,000. This was after they had already been touring for two years at sold-out stadiums and selling millions of albums. So that's less than minimum wage. Yeah, two years? Two years. They had been getting their $35 a day per diem, but that's not... That's still not very much money. If you think you're working eight hours a day. At least. They said they were probably some days even working up to 16. Oh, sure. You know, rehearsing and writing songs and choreography traveling. and vocal lessons and traveling. And and by this time, they're sold out stadiums. Um, merchandise is going off the shelves like crazy. McDonald's um, they're, selling you know, They're albums. selling albums like crazy. <laughs> And they should be, you would think they'd be millionaires. Yeah. And not only be getting $10,000. Yeah. Immediately, the boys began to ask where all of the money was going. Lou had made himself the sixth member of both bands, which meant that he was, at least in the contract, entitled to a cut of their profits. Lou also charged everything to the bands that he had been paying for, including the dinners, the houses, the planes, coaches, tutors on top of his own manager's fees and his publisher's fee. Lou was taking 90% of everything that each band was making. It's, lo- it's losing its luster now. Yeah. For me. <laughs> yeah, is it? Yeah. This the, guy's a... I don't, I don't think I'd say it. I think everybody knows what you want to say. Yeah. The boys <laughs> from both bands were livid, and each band worked on their own plans to get out of their contracts with Lou. After meeting with a lawyer... NSYNC was able to break their contract with Lou because Lou had signed them to a German recording label instead of an American label, like their contract with him had stated that he needed to do. Mm -hmm. 
The band tried to sign with Drive Records, but Lou sued NSYNC for $150 million over their name because he said there would be no NSYNC without him, and he was NSYNC. He paid for everything, which he didn't. He took it out of their paychecks. Yeah. So you can't really argue that. <clears throat> right. And he was allegedly the sixth member. But he said he was the sixth member, and he held all the additions for them. But the judge ruled in favor of the boys, Woo. saying that her teenage daughter, who had a poster of NSYNC in her bedroom, would immediately recognize the five boys as NSYNC and most definitely not think that Lou had anything to do with them. <laughs> She was like, if you ask any teenage girl... Is that guy in sync? Is this guy... No. No. He's old and gross. <laughs> These guys are in sync. Yeah. It's not like Lou could have started singing and, and under the name NSYNC. Yeah. And people would be like, oh yeah, sure, that passes. Mm -hmm. You know? Over the next few years, all of Lou's bands either disbanded or sued him to get out of their contracts. Though he no longer had his hands in any of the band's business, he was still receiving royalties from both NSYNC and Backstreet Boys. Mm. So, still getting a ton of money. Still to this day. Well, we'll keep going. Okay. Lou bought a 12,000 square foot lake house, two condos in Orlando, two penthouses in Vegas, a house in Hollywood, an apartment in, Man in Manhattan, and two Rolls Royces. Which I'm like, why are you buying two houses or two places in each city? Mm -hmm. Like, spread out a little bit, dude. <laughs> no, don't spread out. He tried to sign other musical acts. Buy an island and stay there, you turd. He tried to sign other musical <clears throat> acts, but the only one that had any success was Aaron Carter. Lou then co-produced a TV oh, no, series called Aaron. Making the Band. Did you ever watch that show? No, never, no. The first season focused on Lou holding auditions across the country for a new boy band that Lou was putting together that would then be signed to his very own record label, Transcontinental Records. None of his other musical groups were able to bring in the kind of cash and sync and Backstreet Boys did, and by 2003, Lou started taking out loans to cover the cost of his high living. Mm. He put up everything he owned as collateral, all the houses, planes, and his band royalties, which got him about $156 so million dollars in return. So is still at this point? Uh, I was too young well, to remember. It, his airline? Yeah. Well, it's technically still going. Oh, really? Well, as far as this, where we are at the, in the story, it's no. still going. Yeah, yeah. In 2004, a Chicago man named Joseph Chow died of pancreatic cancer at the age of 72. Chow had invested a lot of money into Transcon and saw it as an investment that would help his family after he died. He had also loaned Lou a large amount of money that totaled around $14 million after interest. Wow. When he did die, his family approached Lou and told him that they would like to pull all the money out of Transcon. Hmm. Lou said that he could put together a payment plan of $100,000 every quarter until the $14 million in loan was paid out, which would take about 35 years to pay off if interest no longer accrued. Wow. When they asked, well, what about our shares, our father's shares our in Transcon? Yeah, yeah. Lou said that the shares were worth about 10 cents on the dollar. Mm. The Chows hired a lawyer, and almost immediately, Lou sued them seeking to stop the repayment of the loan. 
Lou said that he had a forbearance letter signed by Joseph Chow that said his loans to Lou would be forgiven if Lou just didn't want to repay them. And everybody went, mm, I don't think so. Yeah. Nobody in their right mind yeah. would sign that. Yeah. I mean, there might be a situation, but yeah. But for $14 million. Yeah. No. And when it's your sole investments. Right. The Chows filed a counterclaim against Lou, and their lawyer started his discovery into Lou's finances. The lawyer subpoenaed the accounting firm that certified all of Lou's financial statements. However, when the server went to deliver the subpoena, he had to call the lawyer back and say, there's no accounting firm at this address, it's just a secretarial service. Mm. The secretary that worked at the building told Chow's lawyer that Lou paid her to take calls for him. When a call came in for Lou, she would just forward it to Lou. It was becoming more and more obvious to Chow's lawyer that Transcon was a massive Ponzi scheme. Uh. Lou was using his other businesses and several bank loans to pay for the interest checks he would send to his hundreds of investors. There were also... There's no planes. There were also no planes. No. All of the planes in the photos of the information that he would give to investors was actually a model plane that he had taken to LaGuardia and he had just cropped out his hand holding it in front of the runway. Oh my god. Yeah. It's like it's like when, it's like when people like are holding up the leaning tower of pizza. <laughs> yeah. Or like, hey, look, I've got the Eiffel Tower in my hand. That's exactly. He would hold this model plane so it looked like it was taking off and landing in LaGuardia, and then he just cropped out his fingers. There, Yeah, there's literally no planes. Lou took what out- What did he do with all that money? Well, Lou took out his last loan, because he's still taking out loans from banks to keep living his life and to- To own his 52 and homes to and his- pay back these- uh, investors. These returns to the investors so they don't get suspicious. Uh, yeah. These dividends and these returns. So Lou took out. I really out, hope this ends with him in prison. Lou took out his last loan in August 2006 to pay investors. But after that, he wasn't able to find anyone else to loan him money. Good. I can't believe he got. That also, much money. he literally had nothing else to put up for collateral. Nah. When investors stopped receiving their interest checks, they soon also started to look into loose business dealings. Some tried to get back their life savings, but there was no money to recuperate. When Lou's childhood friend, Francisco Vasquez, that we talked about earlier, tried to take out $100,000 from his account with Lou, Lou had to tell him that the money was gone. On November 11th, neighbors called the cops to check on Vasquez because he had heard Vasquez's car running in his garage for several hours. Cops found Vasquez dead in his 1987 Porsche with a t-shirt wrapped around in his head with his motor still running. He had, like, spent his whole life working for Lou. His best friend. Who he thought was his best friend, giving money to his best friend because he thought it was an investment, and then he found that everything was gone. The Florida Office of Financial Regulations began to investigate the Transcon Retirement Accountment Program in the fall of 2006. Lou started to sell off all of his vehicles, laid off Transcon employees, and stopped paying on his loans. In January of 2007, an Orlando judge placed Transcon in bankruptcy after a group of banks submitted a petition to do so. Then, a few days later, Florida charged Lou Perlman with operating a Ponzi scheme. The FBI raided Lou's home in Orlando to find evidence of how this Ponzi scheme really went. 
they found 317 millions were missing from the Transcon retirement accounts, along with the 156 million that Lou had received in bank loans. Lou had been able to escape to Germany before this all went down. He tried to transfer $250,000 from his account at the Bank of New York, but the account was frozen before the transfer went through. Good. After that, there were reported sightings of Lou in Israel, Belarus, and Brazil over the next few months, but no one was able to pin him down. Then in June, a German couple was vacationing in Bali and noticed a man who looked like Lou Perlman at their resort. The German man ran into Lou later at the resort and just knew it was him, so he secretly took a picture of Lou. The German man emailed the picture to a Florida journalist who had written several articles about Lou and his Ponzi scheme, who then turned over the photo and information to the FBI. FBI agents working at the American Embassy in Jakarta arrived at the resort the next day. They arrested Lou, who had been registered at the resort using the alias A. Incognito Johnson. Mm. It was a really dumb alias. Like, that just sounds it just like, sounds some like somebody shit. running from the law. Yeah, yeah. But you're like, they'll never catch me. Right. They'll never catch me, cabins! <laughs> yeah. Checking... Yeah. Checking his passport, they saw that Lou had been in Panama right before coming to Bali. He was literally just globetrotting, just trying to keep away from the FBI, surviving on what cash he was able to bring with him to Germany. Yeah. And probably, and I'm sure, scamming more people out of theirs. Probably. Posing as... U.S. Marshals flew Lou to Guam, where he stayed in jail for a month before being moved to Orlando in July. I just like to think of him just sweating it out in a Guam prison in the middle of brown June. Snakes. Brown snakes. They have a lot of brown. I think it's Guam. They have a lot of brown snakes. Yeah. I don't know. That's not like a turd reference. Okay. That's not a, that's not a turd I didn't know reference. If you're, There's like literally like brown. I believe you. Anyways. Yeah. Seems like a place that would have snakes. Yeah. Federal prosecutors indicted Lou Perlman on three counts of bank fraud and single counts of both mail and wire fraud, which combined carried a maximum sentence of 130 years. The judge deemed him a flight risk because he had just yeah, literally, literally flown around the world. For a few years? Three years? No, just for a few months. Oh, okay. Yeah. And denied him bail. Lou stated that he was too poor to hire his own lawyers, so he was assigned a public defender. While in prison... I hope that public defender was, like, a barely passed the bar, like... (laughs) Just right out of law school. Yeah. Yeah. Or just, you know, just just through the game. Yeah. Please tell me through it. I mean... It doesn't, I mean, you have a duty as a lawyer to do your best. It doesn't but, sound like he threw it. Yeah. I didn't really look into uh, the lawyer. No, what happened to Lou? Where is Lou? Is Lou here today? While in prison awaiting his trial, Lou decided to work on a new television show he was creating. It was called Second Chances. It would feature losers from competition shows like American Idol and America's Next Top Model and would try to create a comeback for them. The show would be hosted by a celebrity that had run-ins with the law. Some of Lou's picks were Paris Hilton, Mel Gibson, or Kelsey Grammer. <laughs> All outstanding picks. Yeah. In March of 2008, Lou entered a plea deal where he pled guilty to money laundering, bank fraud, bankruptcy fraud, and investment fraud in exchange for a maximum 25-year sentence. Though that could be reduced 
by one month for every million dollars that he was able to put back into investors' pockets while he was in prison. So if he was able to tell FBI agents or investigators like how to recover any of the money for every million dollars he was able to recuperate, he'd get a month taken off his sentence. Is that why we lost the Backstreet Boys and Insane? Well, it's because Lou was just going like, to go raid their bank accounts. No, he ended up not recovering any money. It was okay. literally gone. He had spent it. Sure. As I figured. Yeah. But I just want to know why the two greatest boy bands in the world. Well, I just... During the 90s. I'm going to asterisk that. Yeah. (laughs) From the 90s. (laughs) Sorry. Lou suffered a stroke in 2010 while serving his sentence in prison and was diagnosed with an infection in a heart valve. He received surgery to replace the heart valve and lived for another six years. And then died on August 19th, 2016 from cardiac arrest at 62 years old. Hmm. It is estimated that Lou scammed around 1,800 investors out of their money and stole about $500 million. That was never recuperated. Hmm. Yeah, and that's the story of Lou Perlman. Ponzi schemer, possible boy band... Sex offender. Yeah. Just not a just an all around turd icky, terrible. And I thought this was person. going the other direction. Like when you started this off. Like a great businessman. Yeah. That created boy man. And he was gonna be like and his name now is Elon Musk. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> no, mean, I didn't I not really. But I mean, you know, like I was expecting I mean, something like would have been cool, a fantastic cool, story. Cool, like, but not this pervert. Well, alleged pervert. Give him his. No, he doesn't even deserve that. Pervert. He's a pervert. And just all around terrible person of the day. Yeah. So my sources for the story. Did he ever marry? No, he did. They did say he had a lot of girlfriends, uh-huh. and he had a girlfriend while he was in prison. That would try to be like, oh, he's just the fall guy. Like, the FBI says the fall that- guy for who? Well, for what? She would- for Vasquez? Well, she no, she said there was, like, people high up, like, senators and stuff that, you know, he was taking the fall for it. And then the more and more, like, longer he was in prison, she started to realize that he was lying to her. Yeah. I mean, that's what he did. He lied, and he told people what they wanted to hear. And then finally yeah. she realized it. She also had a teenage son that was- she used to take to, like- she used to have visit Lou, and then she realized that he's a pervert, and she wouldn't let him visit Lou in the prison anymore. And mm. so, he never married though. Good. Um, my sources for the story were the Boy Band Con, the Lou Perlman story, which was a documentary by director Aaron Kunkel and producer Lance Bass, and they actually had a lot of the guys from both NSYNC and Backstreet Boys. And the documentary, kind yeah. of talking about their experience. It Where'd was, you watch that at? That's actually on YouTube. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, I think it was a Sundance film, and then YouTube bought it. Um, which is, it was really good. I recommend anybody going and seeing that. That really covered the boy band part yeah. of Lou's life. Uh, Mad About the Boys, which was episode 9 from season 1 of Vanity Fair Confidential. Another documentary style. Mm-hmm. And that... Spanned Lou's whole life. 
And then the hit charade, Lou Pearlman, Boy Bands, and the Biggest Ponzi Scheme in U.S. History by Tyler Gray, which is an, is a really good book that I really enjoyed. Um, Tyler Gray was also in the Vanity Fair Confidential um, episode. And, yeah, he just goes through Lou's whole life, all of the lies that he told, even from a young age, and just how he became the terrible person he became. Hmm. Disclaimer. Um, we do not own any rights to the songs that I might have hummed. No. During the recording of this episode. No, the second disclaimer. Is please don't take financial advice from us. We are not we are not certified public accountants. I don't, neither not, one of not us authorized to give financial advice, so one of <laughs> don't us make is, any financial decisions based on <laughs> what we've said here today. Yeah, neither one of us I don't think has even taken you might an even accounting want to Google class. The tr- yeah. Yeah, uh, don't even just Google uh, just, I took Did you? Okay. No, I didn't take No, you did not. Yeah. We did not. That's what I should probably do though. And thank God for online baking so I don't even have to balance a checkbook. Because <laughs> Lord knows I would not do that. And yeah. I would just be like, oh, please, let there be money in yeah. here. <laughs> hey, I'm going to go to the bank today to see how much we have in there. Yeah, I'm <laughs> Presidential history. Yeah. Which president created their own version of the Bible? Their own edition. Special edition, if you will. Yeah. It was Thomas Jefferson. Oh, really? He took the New Testament, uh-huh. and he took out everything that mentioned either a miracle or anything that could be considered a supernatural fact, because he did not believe that that was true or real life, and those were embellishments. But he still believed that Jesus had a lot of great philosophies that could be followed. He just didn't mm. want all that extra... Yeah, he didn't he, want, he didn't like, want the, mis- the mysterious, yeah, mystical... Supernatural yeah, supernatural type... Yeah, so that was he his... He was very matter-of-fact. Yes. He wanted everything that was real to him. Which, yeah. To him. Yeah, tangible. And yes. Yeah. And so then he created his own Bible. Hmm. The Thomas Jefferson Bible. Because it's, it's always... It's, uh, it's like... It's like the King's Edition and like the... You know what I'm saying? Well, like, like, there's, different, there's different editions, right? Right. So it's the Thomas Jefferson edition? The Thomas Jefferson edition, which huh. was probably derived from the King James Version. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, huh. If you like this podcast or this episode, we just ask that you share it with your friends and family. Word of mouth. Just word of mouth. is Tons just, of great listeners. We appreciate all of you. Yeah, we really do. If you would like to know more about this episode, look at show notes, look at the sources that I talked about. You can go to americathebizarre.com and search this episode's title, or even just put anything that you remember from this episode. Just type in uh, Luke Perlman, it, uh, Backstreet Boys, or NSYNC, and it'll pop up. Yeah. Recommend watching the music videos, great music videos. Great music videos. A lot of special, great special effects. I recommend- You know what? The 90s and the early 2000s had some of the best visual effects. I- literally have no idea what you're talking about like well like we were watching a bug's life tonight oh, and you look at that like animation like that was what a bug's life i think was like 2003 i want to say early 2000s yeah yeah pixar was on it yeah like it's such phenomenal animations and i mean the same with you know movies yeah i just i thinking of the late 80s even space balls no yeah. No. I'm just trying to think of any, like, great music videos that I would, like, still consider great of NSYNC or Backstreet Boys 
like today. All of them. I have to watch them again. All of them. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. So we're on our way to go watch Backstreet Boys and NSYNC music videos. So so stay safe. Stay healthy. And until next time, stay, stay weird, weird, America. America.